welcome to another week of Scandal Abroad. I'm your host, Jesse. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. This is our second episode, and as I mentioned last week, this episode is on Mexico. So, let's get into it. Today, we'll be looking at Mexico, and their most famous person I have is known as the Charlie Chaplin of Mexico, Mr. Mario Moreno, also known as Cantinflas. And then, the number one international thing that Mexico is known or best at is limes or lemons known in America and then our murder for today or our massacre or our scandal is the Actiel massacre which is also known as the ghosts of Actiel or the massacre the massacre of indigenous peoples so um, let's get into it. I just want to start off by saying again that I am in no way professional. I post up all of our links and where I get the information offline um, on our website and on our uh, in the link to the show, as well as I also put it on our Facebook. So you can also follow along with us and see where I got, you know, fact check me because I'm human and I make errors. And yeah, we're just here for a good time and for us to just talk. So let's get into it. So Mario Moreno, the Charlie Chaplin of Mexico. Cantinflas is what he is more formally known as. His hometown was Santa Maria La Redonda in Mexico. His year, years active in the industry were from 1936 to 1981, and his nationality is Mexican. So, originally named Mario Moreno, he was born on August 12, 1911. Shout out to the Leos. And he was born in Mexico City, Mexico. He passed away April 20th, 1993 in Mexico City as well. He was one of the most popular entertainers in the history of Latin American cinema. He was an internationally known clown, acrobat, musician, bullfighter, actor, producer, screenwriter, and satirist. He was identified with the comic figure of a poor Mexican slum dweller, a pelado, who wears trousers held up with a rope, a battered felt hat, a handkerchief tied around his neck, and a ragged coat. That kind of reminded me of some of the, the pictures that I've seen as uh, used as Jim Crow propaganda and just kind of how they really emphasize the stereotypes that people would be would be spreading around. And these ones seem to manifest themselves within the character Cantinflas that Moreno came up with. I'll post pictures on our Instagram so you can see, you know, just a picture of him in, in this character and then also, you know, as a normal person. Although some of his films were translated into English and French, some of the words and games he played as a clown were so particular to Mexican Spanish, they were difficult to translate at the time. He often portrayed impoverished farmers or peasants of Palado origin. The character allowed Cantinflas to establish a long and successful career that included a foray into Hollywood. This is my favorite part because Charlie Chaplin was once come, uh, quoted saying that he believed Mario Moreno was the best comedian alive, and he also referred to Moreno as the Charlie Chaplin of Mexico, which, for people who don't know, Charlie Chaplin is probably the most famous pantomime artist there was. Um, to audiences in the United States, Cantinflas is best remembered as co-starring with David Neven in the Academy Award-winning Best Picture film Around the World in 80 Days, which is also the same film Moreno won a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor in a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy in 1957. So a little bit on Cantinflas' upbringing, he left school to join a traveling tent show as a dancer and was soon performing as a comic satirist and a pantomime artist when he was growing up. He eventually left the group and he appeared at the Folies, Folies Theater in Mexico City. Um, his first feature film was called Ahí está el detalle, which is Here is the Point in English, and it was made in 1941. And then he went on to make another movie in 1941 called Ni Sangre Ni Arena, Neither Blood Nor Sand is what it translated to, and 
it was a satire on bullfighting, which broke box office record for Mexican-made films throughout the Spanish-speaking countries, which is kind of cool in that time. Um, I was looking up what was going on in the 1950s as he became an international successful entertainer. Um, that was the time of the Civil Rights Movement, as well as two famous shows that I found that were on TV were I Love Lucy and Bonanza started in 1959. Cantinflas was introduced to English-speaking audiences as Pasiporta, a manservant to um, Phyllis Frogs in Around the World in 80 Days, which I believe came out in 1956. After the box office failure for his next Hollywood film, Pepe, in 1960, he returned to Mexico where he continued to reign as the undisputed king of Latin American comedy. Cantinflas is known as the pioneer of cinema of Mexico, helping usher in its golden era. In addition to being a business leader, he also became involved in Mexico's tangled and often dangerous labor politics. His reputation as a spokesman for the downtrodden gave his actions authenticity and became important in the early struggle against Chavismo, the one-party government's practice of co-opting and controlling unions. Moreover, Cantinflas, or his character Marino's uh, character of Cantinflas, whose identity became meshed with his own, was examined by media critics, philosophers, and linguists who saw him variously as a danger to Mexican society, a puppet, and a verbal innovator, and a, a paresque underdog, which is kind of, you know, jack of all trades um not jack of all trades i take that back like a man of many hats you know and everybody has their own opinion which was interesting um because you know he definitely did usher in that that mexican cinema which was so cool i remember seeing around the world in 80 days in college and it was the coolest thing uh cantinflas was a lifelong smoker and he died from lung cancer april 20th 1993 in mexico city his funeral was a gathering to say the least thousands appeared on a rainy day for his funeral the ceremony was not only a national event it lasted three days as his body lays in state in the rotanda de los personas ilustres which in english means the rotanda of illustrious personas or persons but is also formerly known as rotanda of illustrious men but obviously we had to change that which is okay because you know toxic masculinity uh he was honored by many heads of state in mexico as well as the united states senate which held a moment of silence for him life after death for cantinflas a 20-year legal battle battle followed his death between his uh moreno's son mario moreno ivonova I swear I can say that, Ivanova, which is Cantinflas' son and heir to his estate. And the battle was between him and the actor's blood nephew, Eduardo Moreno La Pareda, over the control of 34 films made by Cantinflas. The nephew, Eduardo, claimed his uncle gave him written notice to the rights for the movies on his deathbed, where Mario Jr., Jr. argued that he was the direct heir of Cantinflas and the rights belonged to him. Eduardo won the lawsuit twice but Mario Jr. eventually triumphed after two appeals in 2005. So Mario Jr. ended up coming away with the rights to 39 and the name of Cantinflas. But at the same time, there was another legal battle between Columbia Pictures and Mario Jr. over the control of these films as well. Columbia claimed that it had bought the rights to the 34 films four decades earlier, although the court noted several discrepancies in the papers. Mario Jr. wanted the rights to the films to remain his and more generally Mexico's as he regarded them as a national treasure to the culture of Mexico. On June 2nd, 2001, the eight-year battle was resolved with Colombia retaining ownership over Cantinflas' 34 disputed films. Moreover, 
Mario Jr. passed away at the age of 57 in Mexico City in May 2017. So some people ask, where did the name of Cantinflas come from? And the only bit of information that I could find was, uh, as a young man, Cantinflas performed in a variety of uh, traveling acts, and it was here where he acquired the name Cantinflas. According to one obituary, Cantinflas is a meaningless name invented to prevent his parents from knowing he was in the entertainment business, which they considered a shameful occupation. Cantinflas later confirmed in 1992 in his last television interview that this was correct. So if you've never seen a film by Cantinflas, I advise you to definitely go and check one out. That is all the information I compiled for this segment. But really, if you're going to take something away from this part, please go see a movie by him. It is so enlightening and so um, unique to see his character portrayed because also the ideas of... Um, Gabriel de Ocho, those came from this, you know what I mean? Like, these came from from characters like this in comedy and, and stuff like that, giving people the freedom to, you know, being a Mexican um, or of Mexican descent, going entering into the entertainment business. This provided a lot of opening and, and paved the way for that. So definitely give yourself the treat and see if you can find a movie of his on um, online. And then I think they did a remake of, not a remake, they made a biopic for him, like obviously an up-to-date one, starring modern people. But it should be online that you can check that out as well. I saw it on YouTube. So, yeah. Check it out. Awesome. So, international number ones. What is Mexico best at? Mexico is the leading lemon and lime producer and exporter in the world. By producing 2.4 million tons a year, they are followed by the EU with 1.55 million tons, followed by Argentina that rounds out the top three with 782,000 tons a year. Mexico is the main exporter in the world by exporting 630 tons a year, followed by Turkey, which exports 425,000 tons a year. The main importers are the United States with 640,000 tons a year. So I wonder where the United States gets those extra 10,000 tons of lemons or limes. Lemons are extra important if we consider the number of applications that they can be used for. And I believe unlike any other ag agricultural products, um, the most important part of a lemon is their juice, which can, which can make up 50% of their weight, if you're doing it right. For several decades, since at least the 1950s, Mexico has been the world's largest producer and exporter of limes, and especially of lime oil. One thing that I was able to look find out was there are two popular varieties of limes that are grown in Mexico, and they are the Mexican and key lime, or Mexican or key lime, which in Latin, please forgive me, is citrus arentifoli, or uh, arentifolia, citrus arentifolia, and the Persian lime, the Persian lime, which looked to me looks more like a lemon, and it is the citrus latifolia. So excuse me for my butchering of that. Um, but yes, the Persian lime is simply called a lime in the U.S. The Mexican or the key lime is of Indo-Malayan origin, introduced to Mexico by the Spaniards in the 1520s, while the Persian lime also called the Tahiti lime, was introduced from the United States to Mexico. Um, I was unable to find a time though. Persian lime production in Mexico caters specifically to the United States market. A substantial increase in production has been attributed to the North American Free Trade Act Agreement. Lime production in Mexico has also expanded consequent to the increase in its per capita consumption in the United States and the EU, which is the European Union. Transportation costs reported were approximately 11,500 pesos, which converted to dollars is $912 roughly, give or take, uh, and that's per trailer depending on the fuel prices. So that is pretty expensive. Um, and now we know, you know, 
why we love margaritas so much and tequila. Can't have it without a lime, um, which I also think is interesting that in certain places, a lime and a lemon are the, the same word, whereas other places, um, they have two different words or three different words um, and then forth. So yes, Mexico, number one, killing the lime game. That's what I like, local for limes. Awesome, and we are now at everybody's favorite part of the show, the most scandalous or the most famous case that I could find that uh, tickled my interest. And we are going with the Atiel Massacre, which is a massacre that took place in the state of Chiapas, which was a massacre of indigenous people. Um, and is written from the, written by a young man named Luis Alberto Gonzalez. Um, and it was written on March 27, 2018, and it's from Slate.com. And it is written the story of Lupita Vasquez, who is a survivor of this massacre. So we'll be following her and what went on that night and where things are today. So let's get into it. Please forgive me for butchering any of these names of the cities or towns um, because I am working right through it. I've read it a couple of times, but that's still a little challenging. So yes, uh, yes, please work with me. I swear I speak English when I want to. So Lupita Vasquez woke up the morning of December 22nd, 1997 from a good night's sleep in the hilltop village of Actiel, perched high in the western Cuatepec range of the southern Mexican state of Chiapas. Actiel is in the municipality municipality of San Pedro of Chenaljo. The early morning fog had filled the surrounding valleys and gorges like a moat. Foregoing breakfast, as it is custom, custom for most families before to fast before prayer, Lupita, at 10 years old, and her nine siblings dressed for church and followed their mother toward the hillside chapel where their father, Alonso Vasquez, the village priest, gave his morning mass. Over 300 people from Actiel and the surrounding hamlets, who many of them were displaced by paramilitary, paramilitary groups who had swept through the surrounding region in the previous months, had gathered to listen to Alonso's sermon as he raised his hands and voice so everyone could hear. That is when the shooting began. According to information compiled until today, about 60 paramilitarians, who among them had refugees of Actiel, were part of a an institutional revolutionary party which was sponsored by federal and state governments. They were the ones who attacked the indigenous people with high caliber weapons. Over the next several hours, I heard anywhere from four to six to eight, the paramilitary forces slaughtered a roughly estimated, which I think it was even more, 45 people, 21 who were women, four of them who were pregnant, nine men, 15 children, including more than half of them were Lupita's family. From that day on, Lupita, the child who still had not entered her teens, had to become a woman tasked with the immense responsibility of keeping her community's memory alive. Please be aware that this story does get a little, um, not crazy graphic, but it does, I do describe some things like how people were killed, which was pretty, pretty intense. So if that's something that you are sensitive to, please be aware. Um, so yeah, let's continue. According to radio transmissions of the government of Chiapas, which was intercepted by the EZLN, which a quick definition, they are the Zap Zapatista Army of National Liberation, often referred to as the Zap Zapatistas, is a far-left libertarian so uh, socialist political and militant group that controls a large amount of the territory in Chiapas, which I will be giving you a little bit more info on them as the story continues. So according to the radio transmission of the government of Chiapas that EZLN intercepted, in the immediate surrounding of Actiel, at the time at which the massacre was being carried out, public security police of the state of Chiapas backed up the attack and during the afternoon and evening dedicated themselves to picking up cadavers in order to hide the magnitude of the massacre, which I have more, there's more information on that as the story continues, um, but it does definitely get worse. Mr. Homero Tolvila, 
Casti Castinani and Uriel Joaquin were both secretary and subsecretary of the government of Chiapas, respectively, commissioned the police to back up this crime. Minister Julio Cesar Ruiz Ferro was constantly informed of the development of the operation, quote unquote, at least since noon of the 22nd day of December, which was the day that this happened. Actually, it wasn't, yes, it was the day it happened and it was, uh, the massacre was an hour old as he was getting information. Da, da, da. Approved by the federal and state government, the attack was fine-tuned on the 21st, the night before, in a meeting of the paramilitaries led by Minister, or yes, Mr. Uh, Juacinto Ares, which is a PRI municipal president. It was, I guess, if I'm looking at it, reading it correctly, in the communities of Los Choros, Los Choros, Puebla, Esperanza, and all the municipalities of Chinalho, uh, they all got together on the 21st to discuss this meeting and um, plan this attack. Allegedly, the direct responsibility for these bloody events fall upon Ernesto Zedillo Ponce de Leon and the Justice Ministry who gave the green light to the counterinsurgency project presented by the Federal Army. And these are all just allegedly, you know, they're not true or false. The government of the state of Chiapas was put in charge of guaranteeing the impunity of paramilitary groups and of facilitating their operation in the principal rebel zones of the north, the jungle and the highlands of Chiapas, Roactiel is. The aim of this project was to displace the Zapatista war and make it appear to be a war among indigenous peoples motivated by religion and political and ethnic differences. In order to carry this out, the government of the state of Chiapas had dedicated themselves to financing equipment and weapon weaponry through funds of social development ministry and given military training often led by officials of the federal army to the indigenous recruited by the revolutionary institutional party which is also known as the pri in order to allow for time for these death squads to get ready the mexican federal government allegedly designed a parallel strategy of simulated dialogue which consists of carrying out negotiations negotiations without any intention of keeping of carrying out what they had already been agreed to and by this increasing military presence in Zapatista zones, this was a way of the federal and state governments and the Institutional Revolutional Party and the federal army to join forces. Their objective was allegedly synthesized by the war cry of the paramilitaries called the Red Mask. We're going to put an end to the Zapatista seas. It was quoted saying by an official. In other words, we're going to wipe out the indigenous communities, end quote. A few years ago, the 523 villages and 43 indigenous peoples compromising Mexico's National Indigenous Congress ratified a proposition to form an autonomous governing body called the Indigenous Governing Council, also known as the ICG. So this is a description I got from the ICG website um, that describes what they do, what they stand for. So the ICG is a space where originary peoples can find shared thought and solidarity to strengthen their struggles of resistance and rebellion with their own forms of organization, representation and decision making it is the house of indigenous peoples tribes and nations collectively built embrace defend and exercise the san andreas accords as the constitution of our peoples because they represent the only way for us to keep existing as the peoples we are they are our right to self-determination and autonomy that is deciding over our own territories our own forms of collective organization and the way that we want to build our future. The peoples that conform to the CNI rule ourselves by seven principles in our maximum decision-making space is the General Assembly gathered to together in Congress, where we all have the word to decide collectively. Those seven rules are, one, to serve and not serve oneself. Two, to build, not to destroy. Three, to represent, not supplement. Four, to convince, not defeat. Five, to obey, not command. 
Six, to go from below, not from above. And seven, to propose, not to impose. This was a quote that I found on the IC, um, on the ICG's website, which I honestly think was so cool. Um, and I have another one at the end that I'll say, but this one is, uh, I quote, from our pain, our rage was born. From our rage, our rebellion was born. And from rebellion, the freedom of the peoples of the world will be born. Because the heart of our mother earth lives in the spirits of our peoples. That is honestly one of the most enlightening and inspiring things I could see is, is, is that's how not only democracy is made, but it's also like, this is what we want and we're going to govern something. We're going to make it so we can govern ourselves, not what you tell us. This is our land and it has before you were here and it will be when you're gone. Um, it is, that is one of the coolest things ever. So, I mean, please reach out to local communities and small businesses. Like that is the coolest thing. Like I'm so, I'm, I'm, worked up and i got chills like let's go rebel let's go start something lupita today uh, or two years ago was 29 at the time and she was elected to represent the alto central region of the icg home to nearly five fifty thousand people mostly from um the totzotli ethnic group in chiapas sorry if i butchered that the speaker for a still resentive region, Lupita is now responsible for bringing the problems and concerns of her people to the attention of the council and through its speaker, Maria de Jesus Patricio Martinez, better known as Marichui. Marichui? Yes, I said that right. To the broader public, um, she's known as Marichui. Marichui. And last fall, the council put forth um, Maria as the first indigenous signatures. Oh, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. The first indigenous woman aspirant to the presidency of Mexico. Though she did not earn enough signatures to appear on the ballot last year, her candidacy ran powerful on a powerful political message that was never again a Mexico without us. As violence continues today in Los Altos, often following disturbing familiar patterns, it is also Lupita's role to remind Mexico and the world what happened in Chiapas in Actial before. As recently as last fall, or this would be two falls now, 6,000 people were displaced from the villages of Janaljo in the local municipal seat about an hour's drive from Actial. Roughly the same number that was displaced from the communities in the surrounding areas of Actial in the months before the massacre that took place 20 years ago. Though they were different guises, the actors, shadow paramilitary forces aligned either directly or tacitly, tacitly with the state and federal government, they remain the same. The struggle for the land rights is as urgent today as it was ever. Over the last few years, members of local political parties have approached Lupita asking for her to forget what happened. Lupita has refused. She said, I always say what's burned me is my mouth. To speak the truth, you have to talk. Lupita, who is now 32, I believe, her smile is luminous, sincere, and youthful. Her eyes are expressive and black. The eyes of someone who has not even, even at such a young age, experienced enough for several lifetimes. As a child, Lupita spent her afternoon scaling medlar med trees with disconcerting skill, picking their sweet pulpy fruit and rubbing the resin between her fingers. She said, I had a beautiful childhood, she remembers now. We might have been the poorest and, and humblest family. We didn't have enough to buy shoes. No one gave us clothes, but even still, we were never unhappy. Each year, survivors of the Actel massacre and their descendants gather to commemorate the dead, carrying crosses marked with their names and ages on the day that they died. Please jump onto our Instagram and you'll be able to see pictures or some pictures of these that um, I was able to scour the internet web for and get. Um, with the references, I'll tell you where I got them as well. But um, they're really touching and really moving. 
Lupita's childhood until she was 10 was peaceful, but the land she grew up in was not. The conflict in Los Altos de Chiapas, which is in the highlands, formally began on January 1st, 1994, when thousands of indigenous people organized under the banner the Zapatista National Liberation Army, formerly also known as the EZLN or the Zapatistas. They declared war on the neoliberal policies of the federal government and then-president Carlos Salinas de Gortari. The first public act of the Zapista movement was the operation of six occupation of six cities in Chiapas, including San Cristobal de las Casas, a beautiful colonial town popular with tourists. The rebels covered their faces with ski masks, blocked the entry points to the cities, and listed their demands. Work, land, shelter, Food, health, education, independence, freedom, democracy, justice, and peace. Within their villages, the Zapatistas forced on social, focused on social change, remaking their communities as more equal places, focused in particular on creating social and political parity for women. Woot woot. They carried signs that read, Parone las molestistas, esto es una revolución, which in English is translated to pardon the inconvenience, this is a revolution. By 1995, the central government had launched a brutal counterinsurgency campaign, escalating a political and social rebellion to full guerrilla warfare. The war between the EZLN and Mexico's federal government officially lasted just 11 days before the rebels decided to suspend armed combat and enter into a dialogue with the state. In February 1996, the Zapatista army and the federal government signed the San Andreas Accords the first and only document ever signed between the government and rebels, agreeing to, among other things, preservation of natural resources in, in indigenous land, a higher degree of self-determination in public expenditures and infrastructure plans. The government has never taken seriously the comments made in the accords, or the commitments, I'm sorry. The, they've never taken seriously the commitments made in the accords. Two years after signing them, paramilitary groups stormed into Actiel. The first encounters with violence followed in internal land dispute that began in early 1992 when a man in a nearby community refused to recognize his sister's rights to inherit the land from their father. That dispute devolves quickly into violence. The man shooting the nephews who laid claim to the land and denouncing five leftist activities, including several local priests and the investigators of the dispute. When those leaders were imprisoned, a group of 400 men and women from the Tozotli ethnic group, including many from Actiel, joined forces and launched a protest movement that eventually prevailed over in the arbitrary detentions. Emboldened by their success, they formalized their movement in December 1992 under the name Las Abejas, or the Bees in English. Heavily influenced by the leftist branch of Catholicism, Las Abejas saw echoes of their own cause, rights, to the ancestral lands and resources, equality among men and women in the Zapatista movement. But as the EZLN took up arms in the guerrilla warfare against the government, Las Abejas declared themselves pacifists. They identified with the demands of the EZLN, but objected to its use of armed force. In months leading up to the massacre, paramilitary groups compromised mostly of indigenous peoples trained by the military displaced some 6,000 people in the hills surrounding Actiel between May and December of 1997. Many sought refuge underneath Las Abejas. Let's get back into the story because I know I got off way off topic. Um, but yes, so in the morning of the massacre, Lupita's father gave his final sermon outside the small chapel in the center of town. That December morning, Actiel's neutrality came to an abrupt end. As guns fired, Lupita fled. She did not stop running and she did not stop crying. The others who had escaped scolded her and told her if she did not stop so sobbing, the soldiers would find them. She contained her tears and kept walking until she came across her brother, Juan, 
who had been playing at some distance from the village when gunfire began. Some told her brother that, or she told her brother, my apologies, that the rest of her family had died and she felt dead herself. Hours later, they came across a group of women from a Zapatista camp several miles away from Actiel. As the night progressed, Zapatista fighters who'd gone up to Actiel to, Actiel to investigate returned to the camp. When I saw the Zapatistas, I ran and asked them if they knew whether anyone else from my family had survived, Lupita recalls. But the information they returned was muddled. Some said her whole family had died. Others said that her mother and older sisters had survived. Neither was true. The images of mass Zapatistas have long faded in the public memory, but the conflict rages on. In the days and weeks and years since the massacre, Lupita cobbled together the story of what happened that day from testimonies of survivors, including some of her own siblings, and aid workers who had entered the village in immediate aftermath. The shooting began around 11.30 a.m. and continued until 6 p.m. Women were raped, had their breasts cut off, one was sodomized with a tree branch. Soldiers slashed open the wombs of four pregnant women, tore out the babies, and battered the tiny corpses back and forth with their machetes. So the Indians will stop multiplying, they chanted. The soldiers themselves with Tolzitzli brought for a few pesos, bought for a few pesos, and the promise of power. Actiel became a killing field, a message of extermination. If you are not an allied Indian, you are a dead Indian. At a Zapatista camp in the village of Polho, Lupita had learned that just four of her nine siblings had survived the massacre. Both of her parents had died. Lupita's aunt cared for them after their parents died and their own children. The bodies laid out under the mountain sun for hours before military and Red Cross paramedics arrived to gather them up and carry them to the state capital of Tuzla Gutierrez for autopsies. According to survivors, some of who insisted on remaining with the bodies, the soldiers in charge of transporting the corpses attempted to dispose of them quickly and quietly on uh, the roadside. The survivors, EZLN fighters and representatives of international aid groups stopped them. The autopsies weren't performed until the following day and weren't returned to the villagers. Now gathered in Polho until December 24th, already in an advanced state of decay, on Christmas Day, Bishop Samuel Ruiz, a prominent figure in the struggle uh, for human, human rights in southern Mexico, gave a mass on the same basketball court where the bodies of the dead had laid, day, laid out the day before. This is the saddest Christmas of my life, he said, with tears in his eyes. How could someone do something like this? Lupita asks, even now, all these years later. Above all, being part of our community, we're friends, we're neighbors, we're family, she shook her head, still in disbelief. Indigenous peoples were the ones who attacked and the ones who died. You can't understand it. Indigenous rights, including those guaranteed in the San Andreas Accords, continue to be systematically violated in Mexico today by both state and the non-state actors working with their tacit permission. The images of mass Zapatistas that once flooded the international news have long since faded in the public memory, at least outside of Mexico. But the conflict they brought to the world's attention more than 20 years ago rages on. Where Actiel was widely reported both within and outside Mexico, the recent displacements in Chanaljo, the same municipal district, have gone largely unreported and unnoticed. For the last 45 years, the people of Chanaljo have been engaged in a legal battle, battle with the neighboring village of, work with me, uh, Chalchihuatian to reclaim over 44 acres, 44,000 acres, my apologies, of what they consider to be their ancestral land. Tensions between the communities have abetted and flowed over, or ebbed, ebbed and flowed over the years since the land was originally deeded to, once again, Chalchihuatian under the Arigian reforms of President Luis Echevarria. Armed paramilitary groups have emerged, disarmed, and emerged again 
according to Friar Gonzalo Banabe Erarte Verduzco, the founder of the Friar Bartolomé de las Casas Center for Human Rights, these armed groups are descendants of the early 90s, some very likely of the same actors of the Actial era, since most of them were released from jail. The violence came to a head in November last year, which I think was two years ago now, three years ago, yeah, 2017, in the Argarian Tribunal ruled that Chernialco did indeed own the land, a decision that the government did not formally make known until December 13th. Why they waited so long is unclear. What is clear is that the intervening, the intervening weeks saw armed groups of Chinalco redouble their efforts, ultimately displacing 6,000 people from both towns and killing 11 in an unsettling echo of the moments that led up to the Actiel massacre. Watchdog groups that focus on the region worry about the activity of paramilitary groups and the government's refusal to disarm them and the continued atmosphere of impunity surrounding criminal activity in the area could lead to another massacre on the scale of Actiel. Between 2008 and 2012, 30 people linked to the Actiel massacre were released from prison. The president at the time of the killings, Ernesto Zedillo, moved to the United States shortly after the end of his presidential term in 2000 to become a professor at Yale University. After, two after a 2011 lawsuit filed by 10 anonymous plaintiffs claiming to be survivors of the Actel massacre, the U.S. Senate Department recommended that Zedillo should receive dip diplomatic immunity as the suit itself was problematic as it originated with plaintiffs whom members of the Las Abejas said they knew nothing about. A year later, Cedillo was appointed as a member of the Elders, a group that describes itself as independent group of global leaders who work together for peace and human rights. Each year, the people of Actia relive the horror of what happened that day, recalling the events in vivid detail. Some perform reenactments, as other villagers see the ritual retelling of their story as essential, not only as a way to pay respect to the martyrs, who helped bring global visibility to the guerrilla warfare in Chiapas, but also as a reminder to those who remain in power that the horrors that took place here will not be erased from history. In 2015, Lupita's brother, Juan, delivered a speech to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights in Washington, D.C. on the massacre and its impact on the community. Representatives of Mexican state said they were more than happy to reach a friendly solution, a euphemism for a cash payout. It was not the first time that Lupita and her siblings had received such an offer, for Lupita to accept an offer would mean putting a price on the lives of the dead, on the blood of her parents. What Lupita and Las Abejas seek, in the end, is that the state recognize its role in the massacre by trying those who are mat uh, materially and intellectually responsible to prevent any such atrocity from taking place again. Neither land nor life has a price. Actiel is a horror that cannot be forgotten, and to be here on this land is to be able to weave a memory that we can share to make our struggle and that massacre visible, Lupita says. We do not want to be silent because that is what they're asking for. We have to tear up the roots of what's hurting Mexico, adding this country needs to heal. Okay, so that wraps up this week's episode, which that wraps up our second episode ever of Scandal Abroad. I just want to thank you again for joining us. Um, you can now listen to us on most podcast streaming apps including spotify and google podcast stitcher um so yeah please be sure to check out information in this episode's description also I'll have information on there for our social medias and then next week uh we are moving into our third country so episode three 
uh, yeah, I'm gonna try and get these out a little faster. And my goal is to have at least 12 to 15 episodes done in 2019 as we keep going. Um, but yeah, so thanks again for joining us. I will see you next week. Um, yeah, and keep being yourself. Okay, bye.